Welcome to Income for Baby Boomers. If you want to learn about exciting new businesses each week from other boomers who speak your language and have started a unique and profitable business from home, you have come to the right place. For those who would like to try some of these low investment opportunities, stay tuned. We'll help you get started in your own profitable adventure. Now with your host and entrepreneur, Ken Queen. I'd like to welcome August Tarak, the writer of Business Secrets of Trappist Monks. How are you doing, August? I'm doing very well, Ken. Glad to be with you. We both are uh, have fun with technology, but we got it working. <laughs> August, I'd like to go back. I mean, this is a very interesting background because I have some experience in that area myself. But uh, as far as business, I'm just trying to get an idea how you think as an entrepreneur. Were you an entrepreneur from like five years old and had your own lemonade stand, or when did it all start? <laughs> Well, I was always a hustler, you know. I always had, um, I was a paper boy, and I cut people's lawns and stuff like that. But I never had the burning desire to be an entrepreneur. And um, as a matter of fact, I used to tell people, you know, some people have, well, who was it that said some people have seek out greatness and other people have a thrust upon them? I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. them. But I mean, being my own person, being independent, I mean, I was the kind of person that I, I became extremely interested in Zen Buddhism in college, and I dropped out of I was, you know, I had a kind of a golden boy when I was in college, and I had my path all laid out, and I dropped it all and went off on my own and became an entrepreneur in a sense because I started a carpet installation business. I used to just uh, subcontract to carpet stores, and this gave me the flexibility of lifestyle so I could travel and, and study uh, then. And, and what were you studying during this time? College, I was studying Russian history, and I, I, was, oh, okay. I was on a trajectory to go to graduate school and go over to Russia and and I was the kind of the uh, golden boy of the Russian history department, and uh, my professors were, I was already taking graduate level courses as an undergrad, and I was just seized by this spiritual vocation, I guess you would call it, and I actually met a Zen teacher and was so profoundly moved by him that I you know, left school, took a five-year hiatus from school, and came, eventually came back and graduated, but so I always, what I'm really getting at is I always was an independent thinking kind of person and didn't mm-hmm. like taking risks with my lifestyle in order to get what I wanted out of life. All right, good. Now, did you mention Hinduism, too, or or did I hear you wrong? No, I said Zen Buddhism. I was fascinated with Hinduism, especially the Bhagavad Gita and yoga and stuff, too, as well. So your first business that you started, what what was that where you were, when it was thrust upon you? <laughs> well, the first real business that I had was in 1993, and I was got together with um, three of my friends, and uh, we didn't really have a... As one of my partners said, we don't have a business plan, but we're smart guys. We'll figure out something to do. All right. As I indicated in my book, you know, I think most people want to pigeonhole me. And I was interviewed in L.A. just a few weeks ago about this, and and he was talking about he was referring to me, and I said, well, I had to disagree with him. I said because most people want to pigeonhole me as a business guy who's got this sideline interest in spirituality. I look at myself completely differently. I'm a spiritual person who used business as a way of self-development. The reason why we didn't have a business plan is we became entrepreneurs to have a flexibility of lifestyle that we wanted because we were really interested in spirituality. Um, so that's why we were smart guys and we, we had to figure out something to do because we didn't have any great eureka moments. And, wow, we got to go into business and do this. idea. We didn't have any idea what we were going to do. And as I said in my book, I said the first thing we did was not figure out what we were going to do, but figure out who we wanted to be. And the first thing we did was sit down and write the values. Who were the kind of people we were going to be? How were we going to live? How were we going to conduct ourselves as, as business people and entrepreneurs? 
And I think that was a critical, critical reason why we were eventually successful. So you were a Buddhist disguised as a businessman. Exactly. As a matter of fact, my publisher said about my book generally, <laughs> he said, um, uh, Miles Thompson from Columbia University Press, he said, you know, Augie, he said, you're not fooling me. He said, your book, it's a disguise. It's a book that's, uh, that's uh, supposedly a business book that's got some spiritual ideas in it. He said, but it's not really that. It's a Trojan horse. It's your spiritual ideas. Exactly. But, of course, that's what I'm trying to tell people is that um, if you seek first, whether you're Christian or not, this still works. If you seek first the kingdom of God, everything else will take care of itself. Now, I don't care whether you want to call it the kingdom of God, you want to call it truth, you want to call it your higher purpose, you want to call it service and selflessness. But if you have a, uh, if you have some higher meaning and purpose and you selflessly go after that, then money and, and success and business and all of that become the byproducts, the trailing indicators um, of living for a higher purpose. So we started our business for a higher purpose back in 1993, and we didn't have a specific business we wanted to get into. We just wanted to be in business. So you set the rules of, of what the business had to entail in 1993, mm-hmm. and then the first business you guys got into then was, what was that? Well, we did all kinds of stuff. We practically, okay. we always started. We, in order to make it interesting, as I said, everything with us at that time was, we want to make this, in, this is personal growth. That's what we're really interested in. We're really interested mm-hmm. in spiritual development. So let's make this interesting. We're only going to put $2,000 into the company. That's enough money for one month's rent and one month's telephone. So you like the, the shoestring start, and I like that too. Yeah, absolutely. And even though my partner and I, one of my partners, I had three partners, but one of them and me, we had money. We made a, a pledge that we weren't going to put any more money into the company. If we couldn't figure out some way in the first month we were in business to make $2,000 so we could pay the second month's rent, that we were going to close the business. All right. So, so boy, you got it up and running quick. Absolutely. <laughs> And uh, there was a back-against-the-wall mentality that we wanted to foster and maintain no matter – that was one of our values. No matter how big we got, no matter how much money we ever had, we said we always want to maintain a back-against-the-wall mentality. So anyway, we did all kinds of stuff in the first six months. We practically swept floors. And for a while, I actually worked for uh, – on weekends, I would – and one of my partners and I would make appointments for Sears Home Security Services for practically minimum wage. Mm-hmm. So we'd sit on the phone and we would call and make appointments for people to, so Sears could come and sell them a burglar alarm. And uh, we had to do that just to make that $2,000. But eventually we started selling. Um, uh, one of my students from University of North Carolina had a developer's tool called SourceSafe, which was a version control package. And um, he and his a couple of his buddies had started this company and we decided to start reselling that product. And that was the beginning of our uh, really having a business. We started by selling developer's tools, and we eventually started making our own developer's tools. And the rest, as they say, is history. Seven years later, we were bought out. And then by an Israeli company, and a few years after that, the combined company was bought for by EMC Software for $150 million in cash. So we did pretty well with that $2,000, Ken. Yes, I can see that. <laughs> All right, super. So let's take that a spot there for a second. Could someone do that software venture like you did back at that time or whenever, you know, as it grew, could someone do $2,000 today and start something like that again? I think that anybody can do anything that they want to do if they do it right. Frankly, I'm not interested, nor do I pretend to be a specialist on specific kinds of businesses. What, what Can you do it in software? Can you do it in the Internet? Could you do it by starting a, a car wash? 
Dog walking business, uh, whatever. Dog walking business. But I know this, that, you know, it's like uh, Tom Peters said many, many years ago in his book, Search of Excellence, which is one of the few business books I've ever read, as a matter of fact. I read philosophy and spirituality. He said, business is making things and selling things. In my book, The Business Leaders and Trappist Monks, is a blow-by-blow enumeration of the values and the principles and the behaviors that you should undertake in order to be successful. And I firmly believe that if you take those values and those principles and you apply them to a dog-walking business, you would be extremely successful. And my proof for that is is that I take each one of these principles in my own book and I, and I walk you, the reader, along with how we applied them uh, we took these Trappist business principles and applied them in our own business, and this is why we were successful. Uh, we had no special know-how. We had no special insight. We had no special eureka moment or epiphany or, or, or patent protection or trademark or anything like that. It was just um, doing, the, doing uh, the business the right way, the way business should be done. And I honestly believe that anybody could be that, that successful if they do that. And that's why the Trappist monks have been successful for 1,500 years. The Trappist monks are not successful because they know the most in the world about beer or they know the worst most in the world about jellies or jams or fruitcakes or eggs or whatever, all the stuff they sell. But no matter what business the Trappist monks go into, they make gobs of money at it. And that was my big question that provoked my book. Why? Why are these 75-year-old men so bloody good at business when they only work mm-hmm. four hours a day they do it in silence they don't really care they don't give a hoot about business they don't give a hoot about money and paradoxically it's because they don't give a hoot about business and because they don't give a hoot about money that they make so much damn money yeah it, it, it's a secondary benefit to them i got you and you know <laughs> you can talk about ibm being successful for the last 60 years or or whatever the trappists have been doing it for a, a thousand so what they've done is their 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 real strong point is that understanding, you know, the knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Uh, I mean, you can learn all you want, but if you don't know how, if you haven't figured out how really to apply it, the understanding of knowledge, then uh, it doesn't go anywhere. You can be the smartest guy in the world, but it doesn't help you. But they've taken the knowledge and applied understanding to it so that they can make money with it. So they've, they've that application yeah, but, there. But, yeah, I agree. Now, everything you're saying is 100%. But, I mean, I, I distinguish between knowledge because a lot of what I talk about in my book as well is is what I learned um, from I was the um, – I moved into a house with the guy who founded the IBM Executive School. and He ran the IBM Executive School. His name is Louis R. Mobley, and he ran it mm-hmm. between 1956 and 1966. He churned out all the executives that made IBM the most admired corporation in the world in the 1960s and the 1970s. And what he used to say, which is exactly what the monks are all about, is, you know, you've got to get past, you've got to be in business for something higher than money. Money is not the purpose of a business. Money is the way you measure whether you're achieving the mission mm-hmm. or not. Profit mm-hmm. is a yardstick that we use to find out whether we're achieving our, our goals or not. It's just a measuring stick. And it might not even be a measuring stick, right? Because you could do something that never makes money but profits a lot of people. That's that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a, that's a really good point. But I mean, now we're really starting to bend the idea of what a business is, because you know, business should have some kind of financial thing to it. But I mean, I'm sure I'm, I'm game. I'm game for your definition. But of course, the monks don't have that leisure. I mean, the the, the reason why they do it is um, is because that's how they support themselves. You know? Sure. They want to pay for that monastery. <laughs> exactly. But I, they also, the motto of the Trappist is prayer and work. 
And as I point out in the introduction to my book, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, uh, for the monks, they don't make a distinction. Though. Prayer is a form of work. Work is a form of prayer. That's mm-hmm. the point I was trying to make about my own life. I never saw business as something that I did over here so I could come get some money and come back over here and do spiritual stuff. To me, there's all kinds of opportunity every single day in a business. Every time you have to decide whether to fire somebody or promote somebody or not promote somebody or, or whatever, those are, those are challenges that can build your character, that can tell you something about yourself, that can, that can tell you whether you're living according to the right kind of values or not. Um, so you're constantly focused uh, with, uh, I think I just saw a, a quote yesterday, um, for one, one person's ordeal is another person's adventure. And one person's routine yep. business problem is another person's spiritual exercise. And that's the way the monks look at everything they do. They do everything excellently for the sake of excellence because they're offering everything to God. Everything they do, they're offering to God. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they do tremendously valuable work. But getting back to your point, this isn't knowledge. This is a, this is a, I, I talk about it, it's not a change of mind. What the monks, when you become, when you join the monastery, they don't work on changing your mind, they work on changing your heart. And I call it service and selflessness. That the reason why the monks are so successful is everybody wants to do business with them. Everybody wants to buy their products. Why? Because they trust them. Why do they trust them? Because they know that the monks are committed above all to service and selflessness. You know, and this is not strange for business. I came up through sales and I'm you know, proud to say that I actually ended up on the cover of Selling Magazine back in the 90s. So I'm pretty good at sales. And any mm-hmm. great salesman knows, or even good salesman should know, that the more you forget about yourself, forget about your product, forget about your quota, forget about your commission structure, and instead fanatically focus on delighting your customer, serving your customer, then the commissions and the quotas take care of themselves. You're turning the pyramid upside down. Exactly. And the same, the, thing, the same thing with a corporation. The more you forget about profits and instead focus on, on, on a mission of service to other people, profits take care of themselves. And the final one is leadership. Now, most people are interested in leadership because it's a way for, for, for me to get ahead. When I think that way, I forget that the purpose of leadership is not to make me successful. It's to give me a way to make other people successful. And the more I focus on making other people successful, then the more successful I become. The quickest way to get promoted is get other people promoted. Yeah, people, when they get the wrong attitude and they think that there's a shortage, so that (laughs) there is no shortage. Exactly. And the reason I say this isn't knowledge, I mean, I can say this all day long, and you can put it on your podcast and your listeners and maybe a lot of your listeners will even nod their heads. But becoming the kind of salesman that doesn't think about his commissions but thinks about his customers all the time, that that takes a bigger change than just changing your brain around a little bit. It's not a question of me giving you the intellectual knowledge. You know, you really have to become you know, a person. And I, you know, somewhere along the line, I really believe I accomplished this. I don't remember the day. It didn't happen on a particular day. But I can honestly say... It was that a I, process. But I now get a bigger kick out of seeing other people succeed than I do out of my own success. And you have to be able to honestly look into the mirror and ask yourself, do you honestly, honestly, honestly get a bigger kick out of seeing someone else succeed than you do out of your own success? And if the answer, if you're being honest with yourself and the answer is no, well, then you have to plot the course. How am I going to become that kind of person? And just knowing that I should be that kind of person, isn't, isn't, it's more than that. That's why it's a change of heart, not a change of mind. 
and the ego being the big stumbling block. Absolutely. There. So now we're back to your yoga and my Zen. I'm just thinking, that, uh, like wisdom. You know, the Bible says, "Ask for wisdom, and God will give it to you." So, wisdom is something that's given to you. It's different than knowledge. He doesn't give you knowledge. You got to go out and get knowledge, and then from the knowledge, if you're able to to reach understanding and how to apply the knowledge. But the wisdom is something. You know, even he gives children wisdom sometimes. You know, they can say the right thing at the right time. Absolutely. <laughs> Boom! It's the wisdom's there. But it comes usually from from experience combined with reflection. You know, you know, my old Zen teacher used to say there's two kinds of people. There's sufferers and learners. <laughs> and he said, unfortunately, the vast majority of people are sufferers. So experience doesn't teach anything if it's not combined with reflection. Now, the, the monks would call that contemplation or meditation, mm-hmm. or you can call it reflection. But it starts with, you know, you've you got to put yourself in play. To me, putting myself in, in business was one way of putting myself under pressure because if you want to find out who you really are, you find out who you really are under pressure. Mm-hmm. It's easy True. for me to, to, um, to sit in my comfortable room and imagine that if there was a crisis, I would certainly give my life for, you know, for the women and children. But I'll never know that unless I'm actually in a situation. And as the saying goes, you know, pressure doesn't just build character, it reveals character. So uh, an, old, an old mentor of mine, I asked him one time, yeah, he was a serial, successful serial entrepreneur, and I asked him what, the, what he did, what was his job description, what do you do most of the time, Ray, his name is Ray, and I, he said, well, he said, what I do most of the time is run around the companies I own, breaking up meetings and screaming at the top of my lungs, don't sit there trying to figure out it, get off your butts, get out there and find out. So if you want wisdom, you got to get off your butt and go out and find out. You know, that's how I met Lewis Mobley, for example. I used to go to bookstores when I was traveling around, and, and I would go to the bookstore, mostly spiritual bookstores, and I'd ask the owner of the bookstore, because back then there were such things as owners of bookstores, and I'd say, who are the coolest people in town? Who can teach me something? Who can I learn from? And at a bookstore in, um, in Washington, D.C., the guy gave me the name of this man. He said, this guy's really cool. He really knows a lot. That's all I knew about him. But I picked up the phone, and I called him cold, and he invited me out to his house. And he turned out to be this guy who ran the IBM Executive School for 10 years. And he, has been, he was retired and living in the country outside of Washington at the point, that point. He eventually invites me to move into his house with his family. He tutors me one-on-one. Um, I spent two years as his, as his, his disciple and you know, learned an absolute amazing amount of wisdom. But it all started because I got off my butt and went to the bookstore and asked. And then when they gave me the number, I got off my butt and picked up the phone and called him. Mm. And then when he gave me the opportunity, you know, I, I dropped everything else in my life and moved into my, his house with him. So Aristotle said, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence is not a choice but a habit. In the final analysis, who we are is the sum total of all the decisions we make in our lives. And making those decisions and following up on those decisions, that's what that's where wisdom comes from. The big problem is again, I think, the ego because people don't want to take a chance of being turned down, so they don't do anything because it's they're afraid of of looking foolish. But part of the deal is sometimes you have to, you know, humble yourself. <laughs> well, you know, I I think you're you're absolutely right. I mean the biggest problem is that people uh fear is the number one problem in everything, you know. And, um, and fear is the ego thing. How am I going to look? <laughs> absolutely. And I, um, you know, and I was remember there was on LinkedIn there was somebody somebody posted a uh, question. He said, um, 
what is the biggest thing stopping you from being an entrepreneur? And there was like, oh my God, I don't know. There were thousands. There was a couple thousand answers. Answers. Uh-huh. So I started running my, you know, eyeball down over all the answers, you know, and I gave up at about a hundred. Ninety-nine of them were money. But what that person is really saying is, I want security. If I had security, then I'd be an entrepreneur. And I'm thinking to myself, no. What makes a person an entrepreneur is having the guts to go and do something without that security. And, yeah, um, it's a thing called faith. Exactly. Of course, there's a there's a and yes, and there's a, a chapter in my book called Faith. You know, and I talk about. I said it's not the. I'm not talking about the faith, uh, whether we believe Mary was a virgin or not. I'm talking about faithfulness, the kind of faith that allows you to put one foot in front of the other. And of course, what makes an entrepreneur an one of the things that makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur is he's the kind of person that finds the money he needs. <laughs> he doesn't mm-hmm. sit around and wait for the money and then become the entrepreneur. He becomes an entrepreneur by finding the money in the first place. Of course, when I looked at all those thousands of people that had answered that question, you know, what they all could have easily said is, I'm too scared. That's what it is. I'm too afraid. Not I yeah, need the money. afraid of failure and how they're going to look to their friends and how they're going to look to themselves. Absolutely. <laughs> and believe me, I, I have sympathy for people, um, Ken. I really do. I mean, every step of my life, I, when I look back, you know, when I dropped out of college, for example, back in 1973, Everybody, I mean, I was hit with a barrage. I was crazy. I had it made in the shade. I was a big man on campus, and my parents were devastated, and my friends couldn't understand. And, you know, every step of my career, when I moved in with Lou Mobley down in, you know, down in, what the heck are you doing? And, you know, whatever I did in my life, so much of what I did was um, against the grain. It was, you know, it was, and, and I know what it feels like. Contrarian. Yeah, and it's hard. It is. Re- it's hard to be going against the grain. It's hard to to um, when everybody thinks you're nuts. Don't hang. When everyone's selling and you're buying, they're wondering what's going on. That's right. That's exactly right. And I remember that Mobley said. Um, he said when he looked at all the traits the successful leaders and successful executives had, one of them that is essential is that you have or that, that they really he didn't believe could really be taught, which was that leaders, great leaders, believe in themselves. They just have mm-hmm. a confidence. You know, I, I, I put this on Facebook just recently. When I was in college, I was walking across campus, and some graduate student, I didn't even really know him, asked me what I was studying, and I said, you know, for I said I was studying Russian history. And for the umpteen thousandth time, he said, you know, everybody I met said the same thing. What are you going to do with it? I just said, well, I guess I'm going to become a Russian history professor. And he said, you know how many Russian history professor jobs open up in this country every year? Yeah, right. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, maybe three. And I said, oh, that's good. I said, that's two more than I need. <laughs> that's good. Uh, but I said, you know, I was only 19 years old. I said, where did I? Where did that inner confidence come from? And I speculate my parents and some other things, you know, but you do have to have that, you know, inner sense of con- confidence. And to me, a lot of times that inner sense of confidence comes from having your life rooted on something that is worth being rooted on and making making money is not enough that's not a wrong that's not a wrong like like god <laughs> exactly like god can i like you <laughs> you know like having having your life rooted and that's again with the with the monks the monks the monks never get excited no matter you know they, they can, it could be the great depression it could be the go go 60s it can be the big time 90s it can be the Crisis of 2008, they're just chugging along. 
Yes. They just keep doing it the right way. They don't take shortcuts. They don't cut corners. They just keep doing practicing business the right way. They just keep burnishing their image, burnishing their brand. Because why? Because their life is built on on, on a religious foundation. And like you say, belief, I mean, if you can't believe in yourself, then you fail. Right. If you can't believe in God, you're not going to get on his good side. So belief is, is really, uh, you have to believe. If you believe in nothing, I don't know what, I mean, I'll put it this way. I have, I don't know how an atheist would have the confidence to believe that there's nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit, you know, that's a bit, that's a bit. But I, I, mean, but like, I think that you know you, you, you need to have that self confidence. But at some point in time, it also you have to uh, you know you have to be able to you can't rely utterly on yourself either. Absolutely not. No, you, if you're the foundation, you're going to fail. Exactly. If it's all about me, then in, in the final analysis, yep, it's yep. not going to work. <laughs> right. Um, so for the listeners, okay, here's someone. He's 60 years old. He's just retired. Uh, he needs to start making. He's got a skinny pension, and you know he doesn't want to be eating you know dog food the rest of his life. So he needs to pick up an extra ten or twenty thousand a year to to live a decent decent life. What do you say to him right now? First of all, I'd like to know who he is. I'd like to know what his background is. Uh, he's a carpenter. You know? he, he's been a carpenter all his life, and he never was all that good, but he wasn't bad, and it made him a living. And now he's retired. He well, can't do the job anymore. His back's gone. He's in a tough spot. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> his back's gone and he has to sit in a chair all day long you know maybe he's going to have to get some kind of a, a computer kind of job a part-time computer job where he types up types things but i was thinking that one of the things that older people can do when they can do part-time again you know you got to be careful with this one but that's self mm-hmm. there's all kinds of small businesses and all kinds of places that everybody needs salesmen and a lot of people who don't think they can sell actually would be very, very good salesmen. But the honest-to-God question you have to ask yourself is, do you have the self-discipline for it? Self-discipline to sell or self-discipline to be an entrepreneur or both? Well, as a salesman, you know, when you go into sales in your 60 and you're going to work for a small business or you're going to do something, you are making yourself into a small entrepreneur. You're a one-man entrepreneur. So you're probably almost certainly going to be working out of your house or working off your own cell phone and stuff like that. Kind of like a real estate agent does. Real estate agency is a nice job for a, re- for a person reaching retirement, for example. But you have to be willing to hustle. If you're going to sit, you're the kind of person who's going to insist on sitting back and waiting for the leads and waiting for, you know, um, you have to be willing to go out there and make things happen, not just sit around and hope something happens. But uh, but having done that, you know, you can you can do extremely well. And everybody is looking for salespeople. Of course, I always enjoyed sales, and I always thought it was a lot of fun. I like getting out. I like meeting people. I like being out there with uh, with, with, with different kinds of people. And uh, you know, and to me, if I was a carpenter, assuming my back was bad, but not so bad that I was in a wheelchair, you know, I mean, I would say, okay, what what can I do where I would sell carpentry products? It might be something as simple as being down at uh, Home Depot, uh, or you know, selling you know uh, lumber and and helping people find things at Home Depot, um, or it might be working for a, a, a company that does, you know, i got to do estimates for a company that does custom kitchens. So you're, you know, you know enough about carpentry to pick up, pick that up pretty quickly, and you come in, and I had a custom kitchen put in my house, you know, and some guy had to come out and do a, do a, an estimate and, and sell me and, and walk me through the process and picking out the woods and all that kind of stuff, but he didn't drive any nails. 
So I think that's one of the things that uh, a lot of people don't don't think about it. And, and there's a lot of money in sales. Could do. So the uh, and then they could be a pseudo salesman in that they could work for that agent and do all the telemarketing and find the leads for him, and then the the agent goes out and does the selling. But he's they can do that. They can do that as well. Uh, in the yeah. middleman type of thing. You know, and there's all kinds of um, you know. I mean, I, I was just reading about people that. Are making a really are making the kind of money you're talking about working on eBay where they they what do they do they actually go to um, brick and mortar there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about this they go to brick and mortar places and they know they and they have a scanner that's hooked up and they know what stuff is going for on the internet mm-hmm. and so they arbitrage so they'll find stuff that's that's discounted far enough that they can make money yeah and then they throw it on eBay. Probably uh, if it's new stuff, you're better off on Amazon. But, you know. Or Amazon, exactly. And yeah. they throw it on Amazon and they arbitrage it, so they buy they buy low and sell high. Because I've I've done that. So, but I find eBay is more used stuff, and eBay is a lot harder to deal with. Where Amazon, you can move more product, but the difference is when you're dealing with Amazon, they could uh, cut you off tomorrow. But I guess eBay could too. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you the most important tip that I would give people in the situation that you're describing to people getting to about 60 years old and looking for an alternative is, first of all, just get out and meet people. You know, you can go on Craigslist or whatever and find I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. You know, there's a thousand different groups. You know, there's classes, for example. I want to start taking them. Duke University offers classes mm-hmm. that you can sign up for on everything, history and English or whatever. And if you took one of those classes, you're going to meet 25 or 30 people that are also taking that class that are also in your age group. And one of them is going to say, you know, I could use somebody like you. So networking. And okay. That, just networking. You know, just networking and, and, and getting out and, and and just bumping into people. To me, it's so much of life is, is, a, is a question of, um, you know, serendipity and being, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And uh, and that means uh, getting together with the right people and just, you know, somebody comes up with an idea and says, well, we could use a guy like you to do that or this or maybe about this or whatever. But um, where there's a will, there's a way. All right. Let's take someone who is an expert. Let's say he's a expert at uh, tax accounting. He's retiring. He didn't own the firm. He's never been an entrepreneur, but, you know, the business has always just been handed to him, you know, sort of thing. What would you recommend for someone that's an expert in some in some field? To me, one of the things to suggest is, you know, how much volunteer work are you doing? You know, if somebody's an expert, you know, get your use your expertise in any way you possibly can. Give it out, and you know, and of course, the secret is where the change of heart's got to come in. Don't expect anything in return, and the better job you do at not expecting anything in return for the services you offer to other people, the way the monks do it the faster it's going to come back to you. And that's the trick. It's a hard thing to forget that, that you're counting on, you know, you're, you know. But just get out there and, and offer people the benefit of your services. You know, if you're a tax accountant, then offer the offer your local church your services, you know, do their books for them or whatever. And, uh, put again, put yourself in play. Put yourself in a position, you know. But besides that, there's no, you know, I don't have any magic bullet that how do you find a job, you know. How did you find all the other jobs you ever had in your life? You know, you start by well, I'm seeing you know more people wanting to become entrepreneurs, but they've not done it, so they're they're a little squeamish. They know how to do an expertise, but they're trying to figure out how to apply it. Well, the you most know? important thing is if you want to, if you have an expertise, you want to be ninety percent of entrepreneurship. If you're starting small, you know, is, is salesmanship. 
um, I used to talk to people. You know, I've, I've done a lot of work around here, and you know, and so listen, I said, ninety percent of the CEO's job in a startup company is sales. I mean, the cost, cost control is easy. I mean, you can you know, you can always count the number of copies you're making in the copy machine and cut down on that or something. But that is not the secret to success: keeping costs down. You know, you have to do that, but that's not hard. You know, products are not necessarily hard to come by. I mean, great products like Apple Computer or something certainly is. But the vast majority of work that an entrepreneur, let's say you take your professional, the guy you just talked about, let's say he's a tax planner or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Well, he has to find clients. That's his problem. That's the only problem he's got. He's got to find clients. That's sales. That's marketing. My, when I was CEO of my, I had two companies, and I, when I was CEO of those companies, and I had them at the same time, I, I spent 95% of my time on the phone. Um, and that's why in most corporations they have chief offer chief operating officers. The chief operating officer is the guy that walks around the business and and keeps costs under control and works on execution and and you know. Right. Tells, no, the CEO his money. job is to make things happen outside the four walls of the business. He's on the phone with investment bankers and Wall Street guys and and, and trying to talk some other company into merging with him or or whatever. Um, so. And in the, and in the small business, you know, I, I used to all people come to me and they they want to invest, and I say, well, you know, for, I, I immediately if the CEO is not selling, then I don't want to invest. If the CEO CEO isn't what selling? Oh, if he's not, yeah, he's not doing his job. <laughs> right. I mean, I I remember we almost uh, sold one. Of, I had a product that was very successful. And we almost sold to another software company, and I got to know the two founders of that company very very well. And they were both programmers. I mean, they were programmers to their eyeballs. There was a company called New Mega. And I was talking to them one time, and I said, you know, how did you guys get your start? And they said, well, we started out with a bare-bones product. But what we did is we made an absolute pledge to each other that we would not go home from work until we had sold enough of this product to pay for the tomorrow's bills. Nice. And he said, you know, all you said, there was many a night when we didn't go home till 11 o'clock at night. And so he had these two, you can imagine these two programmers just pounding the phone. The, the company that I talked mentioned earlier, which we started out with, SourceSafe, I was started by three programming-type guys. And they pounded and pounded and pounded the phones. And um, and they ended up selling SourceSafe to Microsoft for millions of dollars. You know, you have to be able and willing to, you know, and it's very, very hard when you're starting out. Let's take your example of somebody who's just retiring, you know. He, he doesn't have the money to hire a salesman. And even if he did have the money to hire a salesman, he wouldn't have enough money to hire a real salesman. And so the big problem becomes if a guy's got a lot of talent as a salesman, you know, like you know, say for somebody like me with my track record in sales, and you came to me and said, "Listen, I'm over, I'm a, I'm a CPA, and I just got laid off, and I'm 58 years old, and I want you to find me clients for him. What's the likelihood that I'm going to go to work for him? I can find a better gig than that. So the kind of salesman you're going to find are the, are the ones you don't want." So you have to be able to you know, realize that if you're going to be an entrepreneur and you want to go out on your own, what is your strategy for finding clients? I remember my brothers are both um, – my brothers have a, a very successful law firm. And years ago, my brother John, a partner in the law firm, said that, it, that this woman, a woman who eventually married my brother, uh, she was a, a, an attorney uh, working for a big law firm, and she – um, and she said to my brother one time, she said, you know, I don't understand. She said, I do all the work. I'm the one that goes to court. I'm the one that files all the papers. I'm all this, you know, and the partners in my firm are the guys that make all the money. And my brother said to her, listen, you got to understand, the person who makes the money is the one who brings the client into the firm. The rainmaker. <laughs> yeah, the rainmaker makes the money. It's easy to find people, you know, 
It's just like the same thing with your carpenter that you mentioned earlier. You know, it's easy to find carpenters if somebody else finds somebody who wants a house built, you know, who's got a million dollars to pay the carpenters. <laughs> if the guy who finds the, uh, the the client who wants a house built and is willing to put a million dollars into it, that person is the one that makes a lot of the money. Mm-hmm. The carpenters make their fifteen or twenty dollars an hour or thirty dollars an hour, whatever. So you have okay. to say to yourself, "Am I a rainmaker?" If the answer is no, am I willing to become a rainmaker? Yes. Mm, good. <laughs> you know, and if the answer still is no, then don't be an entrepreneur. Then you're not an entrepreneur. It might not be a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I'd, I'd take up fishing. But there is, there's an amazing how many attorneys, for example, own businesses and really are not entrepreneurs at all. It's a, the reason I'm familiar with entrepreneurs, I took someone from our church and he worked for the government as a, an attorney and he wanted to get out of it. And I said, uh, he asked me, could I, could you, could you promote me? And I said, well, I've not promoted an attorney like this before, but yeah, I think I could. And so the first two months I did the traditional ways. He gave me like 10 big books. And so I raised $40,000 through Habitat for Humanity and got him to become president of his Habitat. And we got one customer and he was free. <laughs> So I said, uh, we're throwing these books away now. <laughs> well, I think a lot of attorneys it. are actually pretty good entrepreneurs. I mean, first of all, my brothers, for example, built a private practice. You know, they did. Uh-huh. They started from absolute scratch, and now they've got a multi-million-dollar practice. He was out selling your brother. Yeah, yeah, my brother did a lot of selling. See, this attorney I work with, he didn't want to do any of the selling. Oh, of course. So, no, so the, if you have enough money to start with, you, yeah. and you get lucky, you can hire the selling. No, he didn't have the money, but I I did help him. So, the, so, but the second two months I did it my way, and in that sixty days we went from zero to sixty-five thousand a month in billing, and he's still going. So, you know, I had to come up with a new way of doing it. I couldn't use the traditional ways because I figured it'll take us ten years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if we want to get to where you where you want to be, I'll starve to death, and so will you. <laughs> so we, we I changed the plans quickly, and then we got it going. But uh, I don't, he would never have made it without me. There wouldn't have been a chance. I, I me being the entrepreneur, and he had the credentials he was the attorney so you know i could hire him out at 300 dollars an hour and i just had to find the customers which i did her clients he didn't like me using customers oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but let, let's just go with this for a second so thinking right now okay the we've got a lot of people that are retired here and they're you know they're afraid you know this is a whole new world uh they've had someone you know that they've worked for all these years and now they're going to have to take a small pension and figure out where they're going from here what would be your comments there for them to start? How should they start to think right now to to, to get things moving? Again, I I start. You know, I have a concept in my book, uh, in Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. I talk about aim past the target. And I talk about Father Francis, my hero, who was the abbot of that monastery, Mepkin Abbey, where the book takes place. And I've been going down there for 17 years and, and uh, living and working beside the monks down there as a monastic guest. And Father Francis used to say, your God is too small. He used to say that to the monks. And it's a question of imagination. And it's a question of, you know, and I think the first thing, you know, is to look around and say, okay, what do I want my life to be about now? I mean, I think a lot of times when people get older and they're looking at retirement and all the the scenarios you're talking about, they start to get frantic. They they are. Mm-hmm. They're frantic. And they want to grab panic. onto the first thing they see or, you know, and, mm-hmm. and um Sometimes it's not even they, they don't really even need the money or anything. It's what am I going to do with myself if I'm just sitting here in this chair all day? They have this mm-hmm. vision of just yes. sitting yes. here going quietly mad. And oftentimes the, re- the reason why we 
find ourselves in this situation is is that we invest so much of ourselves in our career. And when the career either comes to an end for whatever reasons or it just stops working, and I'm working with a client right now who's very successful, been very successful, and he's just sick of it. He's just sick of business. He doesn't want to do it anymore. And it's not like he wants a change of a job or he wants a promotion or, or, or a lateral move. or He doesn't want to do it anymore. He's been doing it 30 years. And he's got money, so that's not the problem. The problem is what am I going to do with myself? Yes, there's a bunch of listeners in that boat also. And I think that this is, you have to see this as an opportunity. This is an opportunity for you to do what we used to call back in the 60s, an agonize and reappraisal. This is an opportunity, you know, to say, listen, what do I want the rest of my life to be about? One of the things I suggest for people in that is start, is put a group together. Put it, I belong to a, I host, I have people over Saturday. I host groups of people to come over to discuss these things. Um, to start reading some books together. So to get a meetup group. Right, to get more active in your church, get more active in your family, get more active. You know, stop being a, a, an adrenaline junkie or a busyness junkie. I mean, to me, there's nothing to be, you know, um, so people are so incredibly proud of the fact that they're, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, which, of course, is supposed to give them, me and, and themselves, the impression that they're so desperately need the world, so desperately needs them, you know? Yes. But what they don't realize is in many cases, they're really just running, 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 desperately afraid of, of uh, that if they ever stopped being busy, that somehow or another the world would open up underneath and swallow them up. So I think it's a, a tremendous time to say, wait a second, what do I really want to do with the rest of my life? I mean, I was, the Lord really, really, uh, you know, it's another one of the stories that I tell in my book. I mean, I never wanted to be a writer. I never dreamed I would be a writer. And then uh, uh, I took a chance. You know, I, somebody sent me a, an email, uh, one of my old students, and said, hey, there's this writing contest. You know, they're offering a $100,000 grand prize. The Templeton, nice. the Templeton Foundation is. It's called the Power of Purpose Essay Contest. You know, I looked it up, and at first I wasn't going to do it because it was open to professional writers. It was open to previously published material. I said, what chance do I have against that kind of competition? And but I did it, you know, and I wrote an essay about this monk down at the monastery, Brother John, um, and, and a Christmas story about meeting him on a Christmas Eve and what it taught me and everything. And, and I won the hundred thousand dollars, and um, and I won the grand prize. And I, this was this was two thousand four, two thousand five. I became the grand prize winner, and from there, uh, a couple of years later, I was uh, sat down on the weekend and I just decided, and I was just always asking myself the question: Why are these monks so good in business? You know. So I sat down one weekend and I wrote uh, a paper about why I thought they were so good at business. And uh, through a, an accident, um, the editor at Forbes at Leadership got a hold of it and he called me up and he said, uh, I'd like to publish it in Forbes, uh, but it's too long, so I want to make it a four-part article and I don't want to change anything about it. I love it, but I want to change the title. And I said, what do you think the title should be? And he said, Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks. And I said, okay, call it that. So he changed it. Nice. So That's that, where you got the name. <laughs> so then it was a big, you know, and then Forbes, it was a big article with a big hit on Forbes. And so I was talking, so then my editor comes back to me and he says, listen, I'd like you to become a ongoing contributor so that you could write a lot of articles for us. And that led... Were you an English major or something? No. Or? I told you I was a history major. Okay. So 
still, you've got, I mean, uh, you probably know a, a bit of writing in that field, right? Yeah, I mean, and then, then, then it turned out that somebody wanted me to like my article a lot, and then Columbia Business School said, why don't you write a book about this? I didn't even have an agent. So uh, so then I bring out my book, Business Secrets. So I have this, and then I get asked to give lectures, and then I get asked to be on your podcast. And so I have a whole new career that had nothing to do that I never would have thought, you know. And But the key thing, as I keep telling people, is when I first went to visit, and so much of it was based on the monks and my connection to the monks was the entree place. But I said back in 1996, when I first started visiting the monastery, I didn't go there because I said, you know what, if I go to the monastery... And hang out there. I bet that I could become a writer, and then I'll become famous, and I'll be on Forbes. No. They're, the monastery was your meetups. My that was you. just purely my – I went there for purely spiritual reasons, and everything else kind of just fell out. It just fell out. It was like – I call them happy accidents. Mm-hmm. But when you seek first the kingdom, and a happy accidents happen to you. So yes. I ended up with this whole new career, you know, um, as a writer. Now everybody, my first book was very successful. Now people want to know what my next book is. And at my point at this time is not, I actually want to be, I want to be less busy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got you. I got you. Just to go back a couple of steps. At one point there, I wrote this down. The people, they're 60, 65, and they're afraid to meet themselves. You know, they're thinking, who am I really? You know, I was, that, my job was me, but who am I? Who am Absolutely. I? You know, I remember there's a guy, his name is David Miller, and he runs the Princeton Faith and Work Initiative, and he interviewed me one time, and, and we were talking in the interview, and he said, yeah, he said, you spend your whole life climbing the ladder, only to find that it's leading against the wrong tree. You know, but it's never too late, and that's why you do need to go through the agonizing reappraisal and say, "Listen, what do I want my life to be about?" You know, okay, you know, I've done the I've done the career thing. Maybe maybe I should start thinking about doing something different in my life, doing more volunteer work, doing more. You know, and the next thing you know, you're you're a writer. <laughs> I feel this about people that I don't really care what he was if he was a carpenter all his life, or. He was an accountant or whatever. But after 60 years, I believe he has great value. I mean, I believe everyone has great value. Right, absolutely. Oh, no, no question yeah. about that. You know, and they just haven't figured out what they were good at, or they didn't realize their value it was so natural. But somewhere in those 60 years, they learned some real good lessons that, that well, have value to others. The most important others. lesson that we still need to learn at 50, 60, 40 is forget yourself. You know, this whole idea, you know, what what are people afraid of? You know, they're afraid of of depression. What is depression? Depression is this sitting in a chair consumed by thoughts of myself. That's what happens with depression. You just sit there and all you can think of is I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed. And it all starts with I, 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 I'm depressed. Mm -hmm. depressed." You know, if you you would, people would just start with a completely, you know, reverse the whole order. Get out of bed every morning and say, what can I do for somebody else today? And, and, and before you know it, you know, things take start happening that you couldn't even imagine. I'm going to, it would have happened. And, uh, and you're, you're absolutely amazed that, that, that it happened, but you didn't, and it did, you weren't planning for it. I just, uh, I got this email today, uh, just a couple of days ago from this woman, and, um, she had been, she'd written me, I don't know who she is, but she found my name on the internet and through my writing and stuff, and she wrote to me, and she was in a very dark place. And anyway, she just said, uh, and she wrote to me, she said, a few nights after I emailed you, I meditated and asked, asked God for what I'm supposed to do with my life. And only moments later, something flashed in my mind, advising business investing their money in philanthropy. Anyway, she goes on to talk about how she just, uh, the inspiration of talking to me led to her asking God for this advice. And then she had this, just this idea about philanthropy. 
Then she just reached out and sent a letter to this company asking for an internship. And um, she's an older woman. She's not young. And they wrote back to her and saying they don't actually accept it, uh, you know, the interns. And, uh, and then she was really, you know, about, but a month or two later, I don't know where she gets a letter from that same company saying, yes, we do want to take you. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so she goes on the rest of the letter just saying how her whole life has opened up. And, and it all started, she says, by reaching out to me. Now, I can't take any credit. All I wrote, I wrote her back a nice little email letter saying, you know, keep the faith, keep one foot in front of the other, you know, you know don't lose faith in yourself and stuff. But, I mean, this is, I see this again and again and again. I see this in the way the monks live their lives and the way their success comes about. You're not the consumer, you're the facilitator. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, the biggest conclusion I've come to about this, too, is today is the only day that really counts. Tomorrow's gone, and most is misery back there. Yeah. So, you know, as Paul said, don't be looking back there. That's not a good place. And tomorrow, you, you're you not promised tomorrow anyway. So it's like, it's today, man. <laughs> you just seize the day. I mean, this is the day. Carpe I mean, diem. What's that? Carpe diem. Seize the day. It's today, okay. Yeah, it's the only thing you have to operate in today. And and I thought that everything you've all, all you've done all your life has accumulated for this day. So use it, you know. Right. <laughs> like you say, don't sit at home doing nothing. <laughs> Do something with it. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Well, this has been a great time. I've enjoyed it very much, Ken. August, this has been really good. Is there any, uh, well, first of all, how would people get a hold of you in your book? Uh, I mean, I'm going to put it in the show notes, but maybe you wanted to say something well, verbally you know, about it. you can certainly find it on, find my book is Business Secrets of the Trappist Monks, One CEO's Quest for Meaning and Authenticity. It's available, of course, on Amazon.com and fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook. And also, I have a website, augustturek.com. That's A-U-G-U-S-T, August like the month. T is in Tom, U-R-A-K. And um, go there, you know, or you can also go to Forbes and Forbes.com, and, and you can see my writings there. Fantastic. All right. Well, uh, I just want to thank you for taking this hour, over an hour, for, for helping our listeners and me, um, and uh, I appreciate what you've done, and I hope that maybe uh, a few months down the road or something we could talk again and maybe hear about your new book. Anytime, Ken. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, sir. Bye. Thank you, Augur. Okay, bye now. Thank you for listening to Income for Baby Boomers with your host, Ken Queen. Helping boomers like you get a business started you can run from your own home. We interview owners of both online and offline businesses, but most importantly, ones that are run by baby boomers. Stay tuned next week for new and exciting businesses that you can start from your home. Until next time, have a profitable and blessed week. <laughs>